Let's have a word of prayer before we begin, shall we? Dear Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you that you kept everyone safe during the earthquake. And during this week, Lord, it's, um, you know, it makes me sad to, to see Melbourne and to know that um, the city has changed so much. Our lives have changed so much. But I pray, Father God, that despite the changes, despite um, circumstances that shake us literally to the core, that we would keep our eyes on you, that we would trust that not only are you still uh, in control, not only are you, do you have a plan for the future, but that, Father God, you care about us all individually, personally, very much. And I pray that as we um, talk about what it means to make choices that lift you up, that your Holy Spirit would open our hearts and help us to see with new eyes. I pray in your son's name. Amen. So since we had an earthquake, um, and because of everything that's been happening around us, today I wanted to share about a story in the Bible where there was an earthquake, but, you know, that earthquake, instead of it leading to just despair and panic, actually led to hope and life. So let me give you a little bit of a background story to this uh, to this Bible story. So around the year 8035, there was a man named Saul who used to hate Christians and persecute them and imprison them. But due to a, a dramatic experience, a conversion experience, he becomes a Christian himself. And he changes his name to Paul to symbolize his new faith and his new purpose in life. And he goes on to become one of the greatest Christian missionaries and evangelists, traveling all over the Roman Empire, sharing the news about Jesus, despite the fact that it's illegal. Um, and he gets imprisoned, and he gets beaten, and he gets, um, you know, persecuted wherever he goes. But despite this, um, people continue to believe in, in Jesus. Um, churches are established all over the Roman Empire. Well, around AD 49, uh, Paul receives a vision from a man who says, come over to Macedonia and help us. And so Paul realizes, hey, there are people in Macedonia who need to hear about Jesus. So he takes a team of people, um, Silas and Timothy and Luke, and they sail to Macedonia. And they end up in a place called Philippi, the city of Philippi. Now, Philippi was a major strategic city controlling the great royal route crossing between the east and the west. Um, there was a Greek theater, a temple for the Greek gods, and a shrine to Philip II, who was the father of Alexander the Great and who had established the city of Philippi in 356 BC. So Paul and his team are uh, here in Philippi for several days. And on Sabbath day, they go down to the river um, where prayer was customarily made by the Jews. And they meet some women there who are praying together. Now, both Jewish and Roman culture made it taboo for a man to go and interact with these strange women. But for Paul, in Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female. And so he sits down with these women at the river and he teaches them about Jesus. He shares the stories of Jesus and the God of creation. Now, one of the women was a prominent businesswoman named Lydia, and the Lord opens her heart, and she and her whole household choose to be baptized. And she begs Paul and the other missionaries to stay in her house, to stay longer in Philippi. So Paul agrees. So Paul and Silas and the others are staying there for several days. 
And one day, as Paul and Silas are are on their way to a prayer meeting, there's a girl, a slave girl, who's possessed with um, what they call a spirit of divination, who's following them around, not just one day, but for days. And, um, you know, being possessed by um, the spirit of divination was something that was common in those days. And so this is a, a stone relief found in the ancient harbor of Athens, depicting a woman who was possessed with the spirit of divination, offering a gift to the Greek god Apollo at his shrine in Delphi. And so in Delphi, they believe that Apollo in, was endowed with a gift of fortune telling. And so um, this is one of the practices that was common in the Roman Empire. And so this young girl who was a slave, who, who was possessed by this uh, spirit, would, was following Paul and Silas around for days, saying, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Now, you know, when you're in, being endorsed by, by someone who is, is uh, reputable, it's, it's one thing. But to be endorsed by somebody who, um, you know, is possessed. It was not necessarily the best endorsement. And also I think Paul and Silas had sympathy for this slave girl. And so they actually free her in the name of Jesus, which is wonderful for the girl, but of course her masters are angry. So we pick up the story now in the book of Acts chapter 16 verses 19 onwards. It reads, and by the way, the author of Acts is Luke who was an eyewitness to Paul's adventures. And so this is what Luke writes in the book of Acts. But when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. And they brought them to the magistrates and said, these men being Jews exceedingly trouble our city. And they teach customs which are not lawful for us, being Romans to receive or observe. Then the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. And when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. Having received such a charge, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. We've seen what anger and mob mentality can do in our very own city. And so imagine here's Paul and Silas, having freed this girl, but having angered these masters who have lost their, their source of income, are, are led and dragged through the marketplace and are falsely accused and put in prison. Now, in the previous year, the Roman emperor Claudius had expelled all the Jews from Rome for being troublemakers. And so the slave owners are capitalizing on this anti-Semitism that existed um, to accuse Paul and Silas of, of causing trouble in the city. And so not only are they thrown in prison, but they're thrown in maximum security in the innermost dungeon and their feet put in stocks, you know, which means that their raw bodies, which are sore from the beating, are now, they can't even lie down to rest because their feet are in these stocks, restricting them from movement. Now, if that had been me, I would be very unhappy. And, you know, Paul and Silas had every right to complain and wonder at this point why God had led them here, how he had allowed them to suffer such injustice and brutality. They could have regretted freeing the slave girl. But we find that instead of being angry and upset, the next verse in Acts 16.25 says, Around midnight... 
Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening. So here's this incredible image of Paul and Silas in jail, bruised and bloodied and chained, worshiping God, right? Still praising God in their painful circumstances, still counting their blessings, still acknowledging the sovereignty of God. And this is the moment, right? They're worshiping, it's midnight, when an earthquake hits. So it says in verse 26, suddenly there was a massive earthquake. I don't know exactly what seismic, you know, how, uh, how, how big, but it says a massive earthquake and the prison was shaken to its foundation. So pretty, pretty severe. All the doors immediately flew open and the chains of every prisoner fell off. Now we just had an earthquake. So we can, if we can, you know, picture and imagine what that must have felt like the rumbling, but imagine so severe that the foundations are being shaken. But, but the walls are intact and only the doors fly open and conveniently the chains of every prisoner falls off. I don't know about you, but to me, it seems that all signs are pointing to the fact that God provided them this miracle so that they can escape. I would have said, hallelujah, thank you, Jesus, and triumphantly led all the other prisoners out, gloating, yep, this is the God that I serve. Did you see that? He cares for those who are faithful to him, so you should serve him too. My God is a powerful God, right? That's how I might have evangelized. But that's not what Paul and Silas do. They do not respond to this opportunity to escape in the way that I just described. Instead, this is what the Bible says. The jailer woke up to see the prison doors wide open. He assumed the prisoners had escaped, a very logical conclusion. So he drew his sword to kill himself. But Paul shouted to him, Stop! Don't kill yourself. We are all here. What? Why is everyone still there? Why didn't they take this amazing opportunity, right? The, 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 um, doors are open. Their chains have fallen off, right? Why didn't they walk out? What a wasted miracle. What a waste of the shifting of the continental plates at just the right angle so that nobody gets hurt. The walls stay perfectly, you know, placed by the angels and only the chains are freed. It just seems like such an obvious sign from heaven that this miracle is for them. But this is where we see that Paul and Silas didn't just do what they thought was best. They listened to the spirit, to what was right. Somehow, Paul and Silas convinced all the other prisoners to stay. Why? So that the very man who had put the chains on their, on their feet and treated them like criminals would not be held liable for their escape. Paul and Silas knew that the rulers would punish this jailer if they all escaped, and he would be punished with a horrible, painful death because the Romans knew how to execute in agonizing ways, like 
the crucifixion and like lions devouring you in the stadium, in the Colosseum. And so the jailer was about to kill himself rather than die the torturous way that he would die at the hands of, of the authorities. And so he was about to take his own life because that was going to be easier and he would go with, with more honor. And so even though everything about the earthquake pointed to their liberation, Paul and Silas gave up their freedom to prioritize this man's life. And this is where the true miracle begins. In verse 29, the jailer, right, hearing Paul and Silas say, stop, don't kill yourself, we're all here. The jailer calls for lights because, you know, you can imagine with the earthquake and everything, it was all the lights had um, fallen off and it was dark. He called for lights. He ran to the dungeon, right, that innermost place where Paul and Silas were fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, along with everyone in your household. And they shared the word of the Lord with him and all who lived in his household. This is the wee hours of the night. Even at that hour of the night, the jailer cared for them. The very man who put the stocks on their feet, he washed their wounds. Then he and everyone in his household were immediately baptized. He brought them into his house and set a meal before them. And he and his entire household rejoiced because they all believed in God. And in the morning, Paul and Silas go back to jail. Why did the jailer fall trembling down before Paul and Silas? Why did he ask them, what must I do to be saved? Why was he so willing to change his worldview? And why did he, he risk his job and his life by taking Paul and Silas out of jail to his home and by adopting a religion that was a persecuted minority? I believe it wasn't Paul and Silas's eloquent words that made this jailer choose to believe in a Jesus that he has never met. I believe it wasn't even the earthquake, even though it clearly seemed like a divine act of intervention that made the jailer decide to adopt a religion that would surely make him lose a lot of things. I believe it was Paul and Silas's self-sacrificing care and concern for this man, this man who was their enemy. Paul and Silas had no reason to pity this stranger, no reason to believe that in his potential conversion, no reason to put their own lives and liberty at risk to save them, to save him. You know, this man was not like Lydia and the other women who were praying by the riverside, right? He was a jailer, someone who seemed completely uninterested in Christianity. But Paul and Silas still valued his life above their own freedom. A few uh, before this time, years before this time, there was um, a man named Peter who was a disciple of Jesus and a leader of the of the first Christian church. He had also been imprisoned, and he had been divinely rescued from prison. And if you read the story in Acts chapter twelve, the prison guards responsible for him were executed because Peter escaped. If Paul and Silas had walked out in Acts chapter sixteen. The story would have ended with the miracle of another divine prison break. But instead they stayed. 
And I'm not saying that Peter did anything wrong by walking out in Acts 12 to 12 because he was told by the angels to leave. But I'm just pointing out that Paul and Silas did not assume that that miracle was just for them. They did not assume that they had to repeat what had been done before. They didn't assume that the doors opening and the chains falling off meant that they should take the opportunity to free themselves. Because they were so in tune with the Holy Spirit and so imbibed with the Spirit of Christ that they knew that staying was the better choice in this situation. And they knew that God was doing something new. They knew that God was doing something more than just rescuing Paul and Silas. And that choice to prioritize this jailer's life over their own was enough for this jailer to recognize that they had the secret to eternal life. It was enough, enough for his whole entire household to, to listen to Paul and Silas' testimony about Jesus. And it was enough for all of them to decide to get baptized and become followers of Jesus themselves. And can you imagine after this day how the the jailer and the entire household would now go around the city the next day. Everyone will be talking about the earthquake, right? Did, did you see what happened? Did you feel it? And everyone will be talking about the earthquake. And here the jailer and the household would be sharing, you know what happened to us? You know what happened when that earthquake shook? And Paul and Silas could have walked out and I would have been killed. But they stayed for me because they love Jesus and because they understand what it means to be a follower of Jesus, to be followers of the cross. They understand what it means to lay down their lives for another so that others can live. And, and they would have shared that testimony to all those talking about the earthquake. And many people would be saved in the city of Philippi. Many people would join the Christian church. Before his death, Jesus told a parable in John chapter 12. He said, I tell you the truth. Unless a kernel of wheat is planted in the soil and dies, it remains alone. But its death will produce many new kernels, a plentiful harvest of new lives. Those who love their life in this world will lose it. Those who care nothing for their life in this world will keep it for eternity. Anyone who wants to serve me must follow me, because my servants must be where I am, and the Father will honor anyone who serves me. Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? Right? Jesus had the right. He could have said, Father, save me from this hour. But instead, he says, for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And this he said, signifying by what death he would die. Jesus chooses to die he knows that he's going to be crucified lifted up you know stripped naked beaten and and nailed to the cross in it and he's going to bleed to death and he's well he actually dies because he's suffocated to death because he can't breathe with his lungs um held in that position for so, so many hours he knows that he's going to die but he willingly takes on that death because he knows that through his death many will live And Jesus tells this parable of that grain. You know, when it lives for itself, it remains alone. But when it drops to the earth and dies and is buried, it produces a harvest of new grains. 
And Jesus says to us, are you willing to follow? Dying for others leads to life. Not just life for ourselves, but life for others. And Jesus says, are you willing to follow my example? You see, it's not enough, you know, when, when we talk about evangelism and, and sharing um, about Jesus and, and the harvest analogy is often used and we talk about sowing the seeds, right? But it's not enough to just sow the seed. Jesus says, you have to be the seed that dies. It's not enough to just share the good news that Jesus died for us. We have to actually follow his, his example and die so that others can live. Now, this death is not always literal. Sometimes it is. But most of the time that this death is that dying to self, the death of our pride, the death of our judgments, the death of our assumptions, our achievements, our expertise, dying to our rights, dying to our comforts, our privileges, our time, our money, our talents, our freedom even. Dying to ourselves and denying ourselves so that others can live. This is the way of the cross. And Jesus repeated this over and over again. Here's another verse where Jesus says in Matthew chapter 16, 24 to 26, he said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up the cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? And adding to that, right? What will it be if, if you saved yourself? But in the process, you hinder many others from being saved. What can you give in exchange for those lives? Anyone who wants to be a Christian must take up the cross and lift it as high as possible so that when Jesus is lifted up, he can draw all people to himself. What miracle has God been doing for you, for our church? Who in, that, in our community could that miracle really be for? Could it be that just as the earthquake was not for Paul and Silas, but for the jailer and his household and the entire city of Philippi, could it be that the blessings in our lives, the opportunities in our lives, whether it's finances or health or relationships, are not signs of God's favor on us for us to enjoy by ourselves, but it's actually God entrusting us with those blessings and opportunities because he trusts us to pay it forward, to share it, to sacrifice, and to Make choices that prioritize others so that others also want to know about Christ. To die to self so that others can live. Could it be that our suffering and the lockdowns and the struggles that we're going through are avenues through which God is teaching us to sing songs in the night because someone is listening, right? You go back to that chapter in six, Acts 16, where Paul and Silas were singing in the middle of the night at midnight, and it says the other prisoners were listening. An opportunity to share through the suffering. Could it be that when we fully follow the example of Jesus and die to ourselves, our rights, our comforts, our privileges, that others can finally understand the cross and want to believe in a God who would die for his enemies, right? I, I just... 
I get so sad when I see how Christians are portrayed. And I'm sad not only because it's true that that's how many of us are sometimes, but also it's sad because it misconstrues the picture of Jesus himself. That Jesus was someone who laid down his life for others, right? Who laid down his rights for others. Could it be that when we fully followed his example, that people can finally say, I want to know a God like that. I want to join a church like that. Stephen Smith, in his book, Dying to Preach, he wrote, if we do not live, oh, sorry, if we do not die, they do not live. If we do not die, they do not live. The exchange is real. This suffering is the heart of the apostolic ministry. Die to your rights for their right to hear the gospel. This is what Paul and Silas and Luke and the others did. This is why they were such effective soul winners. Because if you think about it, right, it's crazy that that people would choose to become Christians in a time when they would be imprisoned and persecuted and even killed for being a Christian. But why were they willing to convert and adopt this, this worldview and, and, and believe in a Jesus they have never met? Why did thousands of people choose to suffer and die for him? And the answer is that because they saw these Christian missionaries lifting high the cross, being willing to suffer and die for them, and they never knew a love like this, right? They were in a religion that taught that you have to serve the gods, right? Offer your offerings to, to the, the Greek and Roman gods. And maybe they will, you know, have mercy on you and give you blessings. But here is a God who actually lays down his life as an offering for you because he cares for you. And they could only understand that concept by seeing a human being who was not their friend, who was not their family, but a stranger and even their enemy laying down his or her life for them, seeing that living example is what helped them understand the cross that they had never seen and understand a God that they could not see. It wasn't that Paul or the other Christians were pushovers letting people walk all over them. Paul knew his rights and sometimes he did claim them, but he never did it at the expense of the gospel. In his letter to the church in Corinth, Paul talks about his rights to be supported financially by his church. But he says, I gave up that right because I did not want to do it at the expense of the gospel. He said, in fact, he mentions 20 different times in his letters to the the church in Corinth about how he would rather suffer for the sake of the gospel. And he says in 1 Corinthians 9, chapter, uh, chapter 9, verse 12, We did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. He uses that strong language that he would rather put up with anything. He'd rather suffer anything and be a slave to everyone for the sake of the gospel. He died to his rights so that nothing would hinder the gospel of Christ and so that 
everyone would be given an opportunity to want to be attracted to the Jesus of the cross. What is God calling us to die to so that others can live? I shared this passage before, but I want to share it again because now that we understand the context of what happened in the city of Philippi, when we read the, the letter to the Philippians, it has new meaning now. The jailer and the entire household and others that they shared their testimony with are now the founding establishing members of a church in Philippi. And, and Paul writes this letter to them later on when he has moved on to a different place. Um, he writes to the Philippians. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. I, um, oh, I think I'm showing the wrong verse here. Let me read to you Philippians 2, 30 to 8. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. You see, we live 2,000 years away from the death of Christ. People around us in Melbourne cannot see the cross of Jesus. It's too far away. It's too you know, conceptual, and it doesn't make sense. Until they see us giving up our lives for them. Until they see us serving them. Until they see that we are living sacrifices for those who disagree with us. To those who may ridicule or even hate us. When we're willing to value and prioritize them and their interests before our own. That's when Jesus is lifted up. That's when they can understand the cross here in 2021 in Melbourne. And when Jesus is lifted up, he will draw all people to himself. So are we willing to carry the cross? Are we willing to die so that others can live? Are we willing to suffer so that others can understand the sacrifice of Jesus? We have a lot of choices to make as individuals and as a community at this time. Do our choices lift up the sacrifice of Jesus? Do our words and our actions, our attitudes and our thoughts value others above ourselves? This world already is so full of hate and blame and gossip and judgment and harm. God calls us to a different way, a different truth to live by. Philippians chapter 2 verses 14 and 15 do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless, children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Our world is already so dark. There's already so much blaming and arguing and harm going on. So much despair and fear. God says, be lights. Right? Be different. Bring hope. You know, imagine once again that jailer in the darkness when the rumble of the earthquake woke him up and he saw the prison doors wide open and he thought all hope is lost. 
Imagine the sound of Paul's voice crying out from the deep dungeon, saying, "We are still here," giving that good news that they had stayed for him. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like him. He once was lost, but now is found; was blind, but now he sees. As he called for the light, and he saw the faces of Paul and Silas. And he saw that their faces were were not of fear, nor of triumph, but of love and concern for him. That he fell down, and said, "Yeah, I want to know about your Jesus." I pray that as we choose the way of the cross, as we surrender our rights and our blessings and our opportunities for the sake of others, that we too may be lights in the darkness, bringing hope. And life and community to those who are in despair and fear, and that as we shine as lights in our community and in Melbourne, that others would see the beauty of Jesus and want to be followers of His as well. Please bow your heads with me, dear Heavenly Father. Help us to be so in tune with Your Holy Spirit. That we do not just what we think is best, but what you call us to do. Forgive us for the many times in the past when we were given opportunities and blessings, and we thought they were for ourselves. Forgive us for having, for so long, misrepresented you. But Father God, help us to truly adopt and embrace the way of the cross. To lay down our lives for others, so that Father, others around us would actually want that kind of truth to live by. That they would come to us and say, "How is it that you can show love to your enemies? How is it that you are thinking of our interests above your own? Teach us about your Jesus, Father. It is. It is. We we desperately need the Holy Spirit at this time." Where there is so much hatred and darkness in the world, where there is so much fear and anxiety, help us to hold fast your word in our hearts, and hold fast your spirit, so that as we are transformed by you, and you live in us, that we be able to lift high the cross. Please be with everyone who are going through difficult times. It really is a challenging time, Lord. And we are all suffering in, in various ways. Father, keep us near you. Help us to encourage one another, and to be a blessing to those around us. I pray in your Son's name. Amen.